Well, hello and welcome to Epic. My name is Tim Jones. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we are so glad that you are here with us today. If you are joining us online, thank you so much for joining us for this big conclusion of our series. Today, we are in the conclusion of our series called One. And in this series, we have been looking or exploring uh, probably the most powerful prayer that Jesus prayed, which is found in John chapter 17. And uh, he prayed this the night before he died. He prayed that we, as Christ followers, would be one, uh, just as he and his heavenly Father are one. And so for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking how we can be the answer to that prayer, especially in a world that is so divisive. Uh, we've been learning how we can help to bring peace and healing in the ethnic divide that we are experiencing in our nation. And so um, several months ago, uh, we all experienced the tragic death of George Floyd, and uh, our hearts were broken in that moment. And uh, as a church, we knew that there would be a lot of people who would be hurting and struggling. And instead of rushing in and offering solutions, we chose to pause and simply begin to listen. Um, we knew at that moment there were people that were right in our circles who were hurting, and we wanted to reach out to them, and uh, we knew that uh, they just needed to be heard, and that we need to, needed to learn how to just simply learn. And so as a staff, we started going through a resource uh, with Dr. Tony Evans called Oneness Embrace. And it was an amazing book that he has written that sets up everything uh, that unfortunately we are experiencing. And we learned a lot and learned how to be better listeners. And then uh, at the same time, we started to meet uh, with about 30 people within Epic uh, who are minorities, first responders, uh, those who we knew were struggling with what's happened over the last several months. And um, we, as we began to meet with uh, that group of people, um, we quickly uh, became very apparent to people just needing someone to listen to them. Because don't we all want someone to listen to us? Don't we all want someone to let us be heard? And so a couple of weeks ago, we kind of concluded with getting a group of people together to share their stories uh, with one another, their stories of how race has impacted their story. And um, because the reason is that we really believe that conversations lead to solutions, and so why not have great conversations? Why not engage one another? And so uh, we had an amazing evening a couple weeks ago. And uh, today I've asked that group to come and share uh, some of the things that we talked about that evening. And our prayer and our hope is that we would all just hear what God wants us to hear, that we would put ourselves in a place to listen because I love the fact that we have a God who listens. Listen to this. In Psalm 56, 8, King David said to God, you keep track of, and what's that word? All. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle, and you have recorded each one in your book. We have a God who listens. 
listens to everything about us. And he models that so well. And he shows us his love. And so today, I want to want us to put ourselves in the same place as we listen to these amazing people today, as we listen to this group that's going to come out here in a moment. And I would just ask that we put ourselves in a place to listen and let God speak to our hearts through them. And so before they come out, I'm just going to pray. And, uh, and I encourage you to pray with me in the sense of God, I, I'm just open. I'm open to whatever you want to say to me today. So let's go ahead and pray. So Father, thank you so much for who you are. And thank you, God, that you are God who listens and loves us. And in this moment, God, we know that there has been a lot that has happened in 2020. And so, Lord, right now, we just want to turn to you. And we want to hear from you. Give us eyes to see as you do. Give us hearts like yours. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. And so we're just looking forward to having an amazing conversation today. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you help me to welcome our panel today? So let's give them uh, a welcome as they come on out. <laughs> Awesome. It's great seeing you guys. I know we got together a couple weeks ago, and I've uh, been able to meet with each of you before that and everything. And so it's just awesome having you. Thank you for doing this. Um, and so um, one thing I want to do is just quickly introduce each person. You're going to get to know them more throughout our panel discussion today. But uh, let me give you a little bit of a snippet of who each person is. So over here on my right, your left, is Wilma Williams. And she is an amazing woman. Uh, what I love about Wilma is she has a drive to just do things well. She has a background in accounting and communications and worked for some major corporations. Uh, and then her heart was yanked towards nonprofits. And so she has been in the nonprofit world for a long time. And recently she has started her own consulting business to help nonprofits and everything. And so she is a mover and a shaker. And it's awesome uh, to have gotten to know her over the last uh, year, year and a half, really. Um, and so it's been awesome. And then here's Sabrina Hamilton. And I love Sabrina uh, in the fact that Sabrina's story, if you get to hear her whole story, um, I would just really summarize it as this resilient faith. Uh, she has faced so many struggles, and she continues. If you wrestle with trusting God, she has continued to trust God uh, throughout her life. And just an example of what resilient faith is. And then over here is uh, Rob Benjamin. And uh, Rob is married to Andy. Unfortunately, Andy could not be with us today. Her company called her. She's up in Green Bay. They better give you Green Bay Packer tickets. Um, but here's a picture of Rob and Andy. They've been married for 30 years. They have four amazing, lovely daughters. Uh, you see six, there's four there. You know, it's hard to get the crew together. They're all adults um, at this point. Um, but they have four beautiful daughters together. And uh, you're going to enjoy getting to know Rob today and just seeing his heart. We were impressed with his heart uh, as we've talked and just uh, how humble he is and just what God has done in his life as well. And then uh, this is Chris Seppi. Uh, we've got to have somebody representing New York, right? New York City. So, you know, we brought Chris on stage. <laughs> 
for more than that. Um, but <laughs> so Chris is a great husband, a great father. He's been in law enforcement for almost 25 years. Um, he has seen it all, done it all from being a cadet all the way up to the executive staff uh, in our sheriff's department right here in Flagler County, all 25 years right here in Flagler County. Uh, he's done everything from uh, being on patrol to uh, being uh, over uh, investigations, narcotics, SWAT team, internal uh, investigations, uh, or internal affairs. Um, he's also been in charge of the accreditation process at the state level and at the national level. And so he knows law enforcement in and out. Um, and so um, and he does an amazing job of that. And his other job is to uh, be the stand-in double for Trent Shockey. If you thought that was Trent Shockey, yeah, we fooled you, you know. No, it's Chris Seppi, okay? Um, so they share that in common. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. So we're working on Trent to get a little more muscle. But anyways, so, <clears throat> um, so we want to just share with you some of the highlights. I wish you could have been with us. Uh, we had an amazing conversation two weeks ago uh, that lasted two and a half hours, and we could have kept going. I mean, it didn't feel like two and a half hours when we got together. Um, and so don't worry, you know, your kids, uh, they're like, is it going to go two and a half hours? Some of your parents are like, go two and a half hours, you know, no problem. We'll kick back. Let the kids be back there. <laughs> but uh, we're going to kind of try to make it through this whole discussion because we have a lot to cover, and we want you to hear as much as possible uh, from what we discussed a couple weeks ago and share that with you. And so um, today, how we're going to kick this off is we're going to just hear a little bit from each person, a little bit more of their story. And so Sabrina, uh, let's start off and just tell everyone, how did you grow up and share with us some of your first experiences with race? So it was me and my sister. We grew up together with my mom. My mother and father divorced when I was three. Um, my father was still in my life because I remember going to his house for summers, and I remember seeing him every week. He was there for holidays. And because he and I share a birthday, we've always shared our birthday. We've always celebrated my birthday together up until the age of 18. So my first introduction to race I was about seven years old, and I was walking down the street with my mom. We were going to the grocery store, and a little black girl ran up to me and said, ah, ha, 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 I feel sorry for you. You have a white mother. And I looked up at my mom and with just why in my eyes. I don't remember how my mother responded, but I remember how it made me feel. I was confused, and it made me feel like something was wrong with me, like I wasn't I wasn't, like something was wrong. I don't know what word to use. Um, my second experience with race was when I was in the 11th grade. Um, I brought a boyfriend home for my mom to meet, and it was a white boy. My mom met him, and then when he left, my mother called my father, and my father came to the house to have a talk with me. So he asked me to come downstairs to his car, and we're sitting in his car, and we're talking. And he said to me you cannot date a white boy. And I asked him why you married a white woman, what's wrong? And the explanation he gave me didn't settle with me, but when I look at it now, I understand why he said it and I understand how it's still prevalent in society today. He said to me, 
Back during slavery time, white men could take black women whenever they wanted to and do whatever they wanted to without their permission. And if a black man just so much as looked at a white woman, he could be hung. So I can date and marry a white woman because it was taboo, but you cannot date or marry a white man because it's not acceptable. It stuck out to me as something that was wrong, but I understood what he was saying, if that makes any sense. And I have to, I think the, it sticks out so much to me, this conversation, not so much uh, what was said, but how it was said to me. It is the first time my father, that I can ever remember my father placing his hands on me. As I was sitting next to him to get my attention and to make it sink in, his hand came slamming down on my thigh. And it scared the crap out of me. It made me jump and cry, but I thought, it's serious what he's saying to me, but at the same time, it wasn't right what he was saying to me. Yeah, I'm so sorry you experienced, especially at seven, just that awkward moment, you know, that's so hard uh, as you're, hey, this is life. This is my, these are my parents, and uh, to be introduced in that way. So, Rob, um, would you share with us where you grew up and then some of those early moments where you unfortunately experienced uh, racism uh, around the fights and then around uh, that one uh, episode you shared with us at the post office um, as well? Um, Well, I grew up in uh, Rochester, New York. Um, I have a lot of stories to tell, but... uh, There was one incident um, when we were, going blank now, um, riding a bike. And um, I was riding my bicycle to the post office to uh, mail some some bills. And uh, as I came out of the post office, uh, two, two officers proceeded to go into the post office and I guess they were checking it out to see if I had done anything while I was in there. But uh, I was on my bicycle and I was on my way home and of course the the lights started flashing and they pulled me over and wondering, he asked me, what was I doing in the post office? And uh, I told him I was mailing bills. So... He said, um, okay. Yeah, so just blatant right there. And then what about your early childhood, some of your friends on the street, and what happened with that? All of a sudden, you know, we were fine as children, and then hit yeah, teenage years, and something happened. As, as we got older, uh, one day I was coming home, and uh, I was coming down the side street, um, trying to get to my house to take a shortcut, and... Uh, Two of the young young boys in the, on the street said uh, there would be no no colored people riding down the street today, and uh, they were well known for their racist uh, reactions, and um, that's pretty much really got me upset about that to, that day, and. Uh, 
I explained to him that uh, I was going down the street today and I was taking the shortcut home. But uh, it, was, it was just something to... Um, that was amazing that they would do something like that. Uh, yeah, and that evening you shared a lot of other stories as well. So, uh, Chris, um, tell us where you grew up and what life was like, and then tell us about your first encounter of racism as a police officer. So I was born in Queens in New York City, but at a very young age, I moved out to Long Island to go to a good public school. But I kind of had the best of both worlds because I got to spend a lot of weekends with my grandmother in Brooklyn on my nana in Queens. So um, in, in the boroughs of New York City, there is a lot of segregation, but... I didn't really witness any racism there. There was uh, like the Italian neighborhood and the black neighborhood and the Spanish neighborhood, the Greek neighborhood, the Asian neighborhood. I mean, that's the way the neighborhoods were. When when a lot of the immigrants came in, they kind of set up shop in one neighborhood and it stayed like that. I mean, my dad moved five times on the same block throughout his childhood because you didn't leave that neighborhood. Um, but we always knew if you wanted the best, this type of food, you went there or the best, you know, this type of clothing, you went there or the jewelry, you went over here. So uh, there weren't necessarily borders or, or um, you know, taboo to go into the neighborhoods. So the segregation existed, but I never really experienced a racism. And then in my high school, you know, fairly diverse. My high school uh, buddies, you know, a group of guys I still keep in touch with today, very diverse. Um, my dad worked in the New York City jails. He started in 1970, and where he was was predominantly black men on his wing, uh, the, the correction officers. So um, they took him in his family, and you know, I've been to get-togethers where we're the only white family there. You know, I was brought up not to see color. I was brought up to see people for who they are. So you have good people and bad people, and it doesn't matter what race, color, creed, ethnicity. You're either good and make the right decisions, or you're bad and you make the wrong decisions. And that's the way we were taught to judge people on good and bad, not by the color of their skin or their nationality or anything like that. So I never really encountered a whole lot of that in New York. So we moved down to Florida. Um, I got into law enforcement. I was in my early 20s. And I remember back in the 1990s, I was out on the west side of the county at a place called the Country Store, where some of you might know it's a little gas station with a convenience store. And as I was walking, I remember very vividly, I'm in uniform, I'm walking towards the door, and an elderly black gentleman is walking towards the same door, and he's kind of just shuffle-stepping a little bit. And uh, he goes to grab the door, and he won't look up. He's looking at the ground, and tries to. he's opening the door, and he's saying, good day, sir, good day, sir. And, and I said, hey, how you doing? You know, and I grab the door above him, and he says, after you, sir. And I said, no, 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 after you. I'm not going in before you. And he says, no, sir, no, sir, after you, after you. And the whole time he's staring at the ground, I thought, I've never really seen somebody act so timidly before. Like, why is he acting so timid? Um, and finally, after I was going back and forth, you know, what I thought was kind of a joke, but maybe to him it was kind of serious, but he went into the store, and I remember he went right, and I walked in straight, and that's right where the soda machines were, and there was a couple of white guys standing there, and they made a comment like I would never hold the door for, and insert derogatory term right there, and I thought, holy moly, like just outwardly saying it, not under their breath, and then somebody kind of mumbled something, and the guy said, I don't care if he's in uniform, or I don't care if he's a cop, in other words, it was so fluid, just falling off of their lips, this, this derogatory term. And I thought, man, people just didn't talk to people like that where I was from. And I mean, it was so blatantly racist what they said to this gentleman. I, I, you know, it was just disappointing to me. It was the first time ever that I really saw it. And it, it, you know, it still sits with me to this day. Like, man, I can't believe somebody could just openly talk to, about somebody like that. Yeah, 24 years later, and you still remember that, so... Um, now, when we got together, uh, at the end, we said, hey, what do 
um, we want to say or what should be said that you th- we think everyone should hear. And so um, when Wilma shared her story, there was one part that's pretty traumatic of what happened to her and her family. And uh, everyone said, you've, you've got to share that. Um, and so uh, Wilma, um, share with us that experience, that unfortunate experience uh, that was a major act of hate and racism uh, when you were just a child um, with us, if you would. Well, my dad was uh, very intentional about, um, like Chris was raised, where we we didn't we weren't raised in an environment where we judge people on their color. And he was an academic dean of a Christian college in a, in Texas. And um, the the area that we were going to school was a the the school wasn't the best education, and so it was his intent to allow us to go to a better school. And so we, he relocated the family into this city, uh, which at the time I didn't realize, but I, I learned later that we were the first um, black family to move in the city limits. And there was an incident that happened. I was somewhere between fourth and seventh grade when I really realized that um, that I was my family was being judged that we were being judged because of the color of our skin and not the content of our character. And that was when um, one night we were uh, woken by screams and they were screams of capon chickens being slaughtered in our, our yard. And from, they were spread out from um, where we, my brother kept them because they were, they were capon chickens that were intended to be, shown at the the county fair and um they the chickens were slaughtered my dad told us to stay inside but I was a curious young girl and I I basically snuck through the back door and I remember seeing it we didn't talk about it as a family my dad wasn't one that really talked he was an he set the example and he allowed us to um decide who we wanted to be and I remember at a young age, being intentional, following my dad's example, and deciding to be a bridge when when dealing with various races and not being a part of the problem, but the solution. And because up until that point, the only thing I had dealt with was, you know, being picked on because we wore skirts all the time. So it was definitely something that I didn't necessarily necessarily affect it did affect me because even at the time we had there was a the college campus which was in a different city and there was a young man that that I played with in the dirt and but when we moved into the city limits we were right across the street from his family and I never saw him again but it didn't make me bitter it made me want to be a bridge like I saw my dad being Thanks for sharing that. I know that's hard. Um, it's still hard, you know. I mean, you're not that old, and that happened uh, in your lifetime. Um, so as we shared our stories and stuff, we started to just naturally ask the question of, like, where does this come from, you know? And right away, everybody in our group just really said, you know, this is a heart issue. This is a sin issue. And um, Sabrina, you really brought up this great um, just definition that I've enjoyed. You know, you brought it up when we met 
uh, one off as, together, and then I asked you to bring it up again. That really just, I think, gives us a better indication of what happens in people's hearts because it's so hard to see in some ways. And so you use four words. You use bias, prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Could you elaborate on those four words for us? So, so I think um, all of us are biased. Um, we all have opinions that are shaped by where we've been, what we've done, who we've been around, the things that have happened to us. And it causes us to feel a certain way. Um, our biases can lead to prejudices if we don't check them, whereas we um, lean towards how we feel about a group of people. Um, I know I'm prejudiced, I'm prejudiced against stupid people. And I tend to put people in that category without ever knowing them. And that's my prejudice. If I see you and you look stupid, you sound stupid, or I just assume you're stupid, I will put you in that category. Um, your prejudices, though, can lead to discrimination if you act on them. And this is when you take... Um, something that has happened and you treat someone differently. So if I was a store owner and I had been robbed several times by redheaded child, if I start treating every redheaded child that comes into my store differently, that's discrimination. If I start with, it's not the same child that robbed me, but if I start treating everybody with red hair differently because of something that has happened to me, that's discrimination. And then racism is when is on a whole another level. It's when you judge somebody by the color of their skin, their ethnicity, their differences, and you put yourself above them. You think that they are lesser than who you are. You make yourself superior and make them inferior, and that's when racism takes root. Yeah, I thought that was just a great, great snapshot for all of us and a snapshot to really check all of our hearts because, you know, that's the progression. That's what happens, unfortunately, with sin, and that's where it moves towards. And so we had a great discussion around that. Now, Rob, uh, at one point, you know, I, I don't think any of us were expecting this, but you got emotional at one point um, when we were talking about just, you know, I think the depth of sin and how awful it is. And um, could you share with us that one story that uh, happened to you as you were walking in that neighborhood and um, just why you got emotional at that moment? Um, well, I got emotional because it, it brought back a lot of, uh, a lot of memories, uh, things that happened in in my childhood uh living in this uh neighborhood that we lived in which was a majority a white neighborhood um and there were a lot of trials or tribulations that I had to go through um while being raised there but um there was a time or point in time where uh, I was walking down the street on my way home and um, I was hit in the side of the head with a, with a pellet from a pellet gun that, uh, that someone had shot at me and um, that's what um, happened there 
Yeah, so you described it as kind of, it was a scab that just got ripped off and moments like that that you have. And what impressed everybody that night when we had our conversation was, you know, if you're around Rob, um, Rob is just this humble guy and it comes out as we uh, are in conversation. And we just asked, how do you remain not angry or bitter as you hear his story? And so, Rob, would you share with us how you've chosen not to get angry and bitter and, and, and what you've done in order to um, not have that? Well, well, I leaned, leaned upon God to uh, help me uh, to have a heart that is forgiving. And a large part of it was your grandparents and family members that helped you through those times? That's, that's true. Yeah. So I just want to encourage everyone, you know, the stories that we shared together and everything, the conversations that we had, um, just amazing um, in terms of just really getting to hear, unfortunately, some of the things that have happened, but just some great conversation that led to some good things. And in the night, we kind of moved on a little bit from, you know, sharing our stories to hearing uh, just what's this condition, how in the world uh, do things like this happen and why they happen. And we started moving in and just checking in and how are you doing like as a person right now, especially uh, in light of what's happened with recent events. And everyone said, um, Chris, we need you to talk. We need you to say um, what it's been like. It's been a tough time. Um, but they, everybody said, you know, we, we want you to share um, what it's like being a police officer. If you could, you know, he, you've been in law enforcement for almost 25 years, uh, and everyone said, would you share a snapshot and give us the depth of what you face as a police officer? All right, like I said, um, my entire career has been right here in Flagler County. So these are experiences not from you know Chicago, New York, LA. This is right here in your own backyard where you live now. And it's a great community to live in. But um, sharing these is not easy for me. Um, it, it, it's not something looking for sympathy. It's simply informational. So you're aware of what law enforcement encounters. Um, I wish I can tell you it was all good, but it, there are good things. I mean, I, I enjoy early on in my career used to try to invest and say, I want to touch one kid a year, I want to make a difference in one kid's life, you know, somebody that maybe has been in trouble and, and maybe got arrested. You know, I would visit their houses um, when I was on day shift and check in with them and see how they're doing. And throughout my career, I've had people approach me with I'm with my family and target a Walmart and say, hey, Seppi, I'm, I've been clean X amount of years or I got a job or I'm a father now. And, you know, they, they would tell me and I feel so good, like, man, maybe I made a difference. You know, maybe that's why God had me put on this uniform and, and choose this, this career. Um, and, um, and then there's the stuff that, that gives me nightmares, you know? So, um, you know, I don't mean to be explicit, but the group asked me to share. So I'm going to go ahead and share. So I've seen every type of death you can imagine. I've seen every type of suicide, gunshot wounds to the body, to the head. I've seen drownings. I've seen hangings, carbon dioxide, poisoning, slit wrists, you name it. I have seen it. Um, I've seen every type of car accident with dismemberment. I've seen bodies in the car while the head is outside the car. Um, I've made death notifications to family um, that have rocked their world and just just a sea of emotions in the room. And I've done that time and time and time again. Um, I have seen some of the most heinous crimes against children. Um, and a lot of these pedophiles keep video libraries. And if you're going to write a report and testify against them to put them in jail, you have to watch the videos with sound. 
and testify to those actions. Those images sit in your head. Um, I've done CPR on an eight-week-old baby that died. Um, I've been in fights. I, I remember this guy so strung out on drugs. He snapped on my partner's leg. I had to have surgery and pins put in his leg, and my partner was flopping around on the ground, and me and the suspect went out the greenhouse and rolled down the hill and right on the edge of the water for the canals, and taser didn't work on him, pepper spray didn't work on him, and I kept thinking to myself, am I gonna have to pull out my gun and kill this guy to get home to my family? Nothing is working. Um, luckily, backup showed at that point. Um, but I have discharged my firearm twice at a suspect. Thank God, never had to kill anybody, but live with the, um, you know, live with the fact that I had pulled the trigger. Um, and I've been at the scene of where other law enforcement officers have shot and killed a suspect. And trust me, nobody's high-fiving. Nobody's smiling, nobody's having a good time. It is not fun to take action against a suspect. And nobody's looking at race at that point. You know, it's just the bad guy versus the good guy. That's, that's what we're doing. Um, I missed my son's first birthday party because of a SWAT call out because an individual was holding an infant hostage at knife, knife point. Um, I remember one year my kids didn't open their Christmas presents until almost dinner time because I was at a homicide. And I have to come home and suppress everything and swallow it and pretend that, hey, it's Christmas, open presents, it's fun, this is exciting, this is, uh, you know. Um, so God wants us, in general, as Christians, to see the best in people. But my job is to see the worst in people so I can go home at the end of my shift. So I tell you this just simply because there are police officers out there that do the wrong thing and need to be convicted and prosecuted. But there are police officers that are accused of things that are exonerated. And we need to respect the fact that some are exonerated and some are convicted and not be so quick to pass judgment and understand what they deal with. That this, this just in Flagler County, and I can go on and on and on and tell you more stories. I don't want to. But think about what's happening in some of the bigger cities and what they deal with and, and live with and, and how it affects their personality and, and possibly their judgment at times. And I'm not condoning the mistreatment of anybody. I've done internal affairs. I put handcuffs on uh, guys in uniform um, because they've done the wrong thing and broken the law. Um, so I, I look at what's right and what's wrong. Um, so I'm just asking you to have a heart for what some of these people do. You know, it's not an easy job. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, and the group said also, you know, you, you shared with us and you got to a place of vulnerability. Uh, we asked you, you know, how is this impacting your family, your, uh, your, your sons? You've got one in college, one that's a, a teenage high schooler. And then how has it impacted you, the recent events that have gone on? You know, you, you hear about, you know, you know, prejudice and discrimination, and then all of a sudden, I'm being discriminated against because of the uniform I'm wearing. You know, people don't understand that Jesus is in my heart, you know, and I don't try to mistreat anybody, but because I put on a bulletproof vest and a gun and a badge every day, I immediately get lumped in to a category by some people. You know, there are organizations out there that say the only good cop is a dead cop. And I don't see any politicians out there saying, hey, that's wrong. You know, we as a society are starting to condone violence towards law enforcement for simply the fact that they're wearing a badge. And, you know, my family has to deal with that. You know, my wife has to watch me put on my vest every day and, and leave for work. You know, I, sometimes my son needs to be picked up across country practice. And if I'm running late at work, I have to go get him. Now I'm on an unmarked car, but I'm in uniform and people know what's a, a police car. And, um, you know, I'm wondering, is anybody going to, jump my son because his dad's a cop. Is somebody going to do something to him? Um, you know, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you know, I, there are some bad cops out there. So my college son has a very diverse group of friends. 
Um, and I've sat with them and talked to them about, they all have my business card. And, and I've told them how to conduct themselves at a traffic stop, you know, because the way the world is today, you know, they, they need to understand that just comply, just do A, B, and C. And I've, I've, I've walked through that with them um, to try to keep them out of trouble and out of the five o'clock news. Um, so it's, you know, I'd, I'd hate to think that, you know, I have to explain to my son and his friends how to act if you're stopped by the police. But, you know, there's a common theme in, in a lot of the stuff that's going on in this world. And it's just, it's resistant to law. It's resistant to law and order. And, and I think it's just a lack of love and godliness. And, and, you know, we respect, we should be respecting one another for who we are. I always say, give respect, you're going to get respect. You know, and that's what I try to lead from. You know, I'm, I'm coming up on eligibility for retirement and I struggle with the fact of, do I leave because this job is not any easier than it was? It's getting harder and harder. Or do I stay and try to influence the people under my command to give respect and treat people with respect and, and, and try to show the people, at least in our community, that you know, we are here to help. We are here to not judge you on the color of your skin or your ethnicity, but you know, we're just here for you know, supporting what's right. And unfortunately, at times, you know, we have to take action against what's wrong. So um, yeah, just difficult for my family. And you know, it just kind of stinks. Yeah. Nobody told us that when you took the oath that you're going to be hated for, you know, pinning the badge on your chest. Yeah. And you've talked to me of just how much of a toll that's taken on you personally and, you know, the moments of anxiety and just things that just, wow, just Yeah. I mean, you. some of my neighbors won't wave to me anymore. Um, last month I was at a traffic light in the middle of the daytime on Beltair Parkway and a group of young kids pulled up next to me and they're making guns with their fingers and screaming profanities at me. It's not against the law, but just to think that I'm wondering, do they really have a gun in the car? Are they really going to shoot at me? Do I have to, you know, at this point, you know, take the cover off of my holster and, and be ready to return fire? I mean, this is not <laughs> what we're looking for. You know, no cop goes into uh, their job every single day saying, I'm going to kill somebody today. That's not what we do. It's, it's you really put on the uniform to help and to serve. So um, just try to respect that. That's all I'm asking. And once again, I don't condone everything that's gone on in this world. You know, I'm the first one to say it. But take all of the facts into account and just remember what Jesus would do. I look at what Rob has done, and it's just so moving. He can tell you stories about just violence towards him, and he has chosen love over hate every single time. And I think that's so, you know, such integrity that he has to be able to say, yeah, I've been wronged, wrong, wrong, but I'm going to stand up and lead by example and, and do the right thing. So I wish he can <laughs> put that on all the people that work under my command that, you know, choose love over hate, you know, and I think we'd have a better place to live in. That. Well, thanks for sharing that. I know the group really wanted you to uh, share that with everyone, so thanks for going there. Um, so, Wilma, um, at one point in our discussion that night, um, we started, you know, because we hit a lot of different topics and everything, and of course, hey, we had some tensions even in the midst of our conversation, which was natural, which was good, because these are hard topics. I mean, no way around it, you know. And so at one point, you know, uh, we started talking stats and on a national level and stuff like that, and we started talking about history, a uh, history of what's happened with African Americans, and, um, and you got passionate, and rightly so, and... Um, and I asked you, you know, so what's behind the stats? Um, and I was just trying to look for words, but, you know, what's your fear in all this? Or, you know, what, what was behind all of that? And so could you explain kind of like why this is so important, especially not to forget history? 
Well, for me, um, my I am two generations removed from a grandmother that was in the cotton fields, and she was there to support her family on my dad's side. And then on my mom's side, I'm actually three generations um, removed from a, my great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather um, being a slave and so are working in in the cotton fields. And so for me, and moving to current times, I'm looking at the fact that you have some that say that we should stop talking about slavery. We should stop talking about the foundations by which we this country were, were, was built. And I feel as if if we can continue to talk about other histories, such as Holocaust, um, if we can um, continue to talk about um, various various historical figures, um, we shouldn't suddenly stop talking about black history because it makes us uncomfortable. Because then my concern is that I'm erasing my personal history um, and remembering that after slavery, because I am not just pro-life, I'm pro-abundant life, um, when you look at the pro-choice stand and recognizing that that whole foundation of the pro-choice movement happened after slavery when when well-to-do um, individuals started the eugenics movement, which basically funded um, the one of the largest um, abortion organizations in, uh, in America that we all know. And basically that was done in order for population control. It was done for the same things that we deal with today. Um, yes, we've come a long way as a country, but we, we can't forget because if we, we forget then the possibility of going back to a place that is uncomfortable. Um, it's, subject, it's subject to happen again. But for me and, and my house, my family, my friends, I have a circle that we, we choose to, to look at things through God's eyes and to love, but remember, but not remember for bitterness, but to remember it so we can bridge the gap. And even though I may not personally deal with um, racism, I still have to have the empathy and to understand even in my own family history, it's important. And so I don't, I do have a concern that we want to meet the voices of some history, but not meet the, the voice of all history. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a history major. And I love history. Um, I'm a geek like that. So, but, uh, you know, one of the parts that um, doesn't often get talked about when we discuss this is, unfortunately, the church and how uh, parts of it, you know, has been a part of some unfortunate things in the past, and especially in this country. You know, there's been Christ followers who are amazing, awesome, heartbeat of God, you know, oneness. You know, we don't look up down on a race. But unfortunately, there's a large part of the church that got institutionalized that um, tried to quote scriptures, use scriptures wrongly to say that uh, blacks were lesser than whites. And that movement caught on a large part uh, in this country, and those things were taught. Not everybody embraced them, but there's a large part of that history that unfortunately has had ramifications today um, and is very easily seen when you just start to look up history. And that's something that we've got to acknowledge, but also we've got to say, hey, we're not teaching those things. That was wrong. Scripture used like that was simply wrong. And so I, I, I get that part, um, definitely. Um, 
Now, as we were talking that evening, um, I, I threw this out to you because I think there's a lot of people here in the audience, a lot of people who are watching from home. Uh, when moments like uh, the tragic death of George Floyd happen, um, there is something in us that wants to respond. And unfortunately, kind of the political climate that we're in, like right away, it was just like people were, whatever you said seemed like it got shot down. You know, if you didn't say anything, that got shot down. I mean, there was tons of stuff that was ugly and continues to be ugly. And so uh, I said, hey, as a white pastor, you know, how, how would you have wanted me to respond, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, there's so many political agendas out there from so many different groups and everything, but how would you like everyone to respond? Because there's a lot of great people who want to say something and maybe haven't said something, and so how do we just initially respond? I think you start with just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this is happening. I'm sorry for the pain that it's causing you. And um, try to understand. Um, it may not be, you may not be the one causing the pain. Um, you may not have anything to do with the pain, but you can recognize someone else's pain. So normally we say we're sorry. We're sorry for your pain. You know, I, I think it's important to... Um, before you respond, a lot of us listen to respond immediately instead of listening to understand. We should listen and then understand, know the whole story, know the facts, know everything, and then make a choice to respond. But don't just immediately blurt out the first thing that comes because that's what a lot of us do in conversation. We listen to respond, listen to respond. No, listen to digest and understand and then respond. Yeah, listen to people's stories, find out everything. So... So I hope that helps. Um, so I've got one last question for all of us. Um, you know, as we have talked today, um, what's your takeaway from our time together? And so when we met, what would you want everyone who's here, who's watching online, uh, to know uh, from the conversation that we had uh, as Christ followers, what would you want everyone to take away from our time together? For me, I'd like everybody to just practice empathy. Um, and to me, that means look at what it would feel like for you to walk 10 miles with a rock in your shoe. That's exactly how it's going to feel for me to walk 10 miles with a rock in my shoe. So just empathize. And I, something I started a couple of weeks ago just thinking about being different from maybe a friend that doesn't look like me. And I, I intentionally um, scheduled texts to go out to several people, even people I hadn't talked to in years. And I wanted to know, how do you need me to show up in your life? And that the reactions were just, I, for me, it was just a natural thing that God was telling me to do. But now um, it's, it's something that I've embraced and I encourage other to, others to embrace. We don't always have the same experience um, and we have different backgrounds, but it's important to understand that, that how we show up in people's lives is what they need and not so much what's always comfortable to us. 
And I think that, you know, everybody needs to understand, you know, we sat together for a little over two and a half hours. You know, we didn't all come together on everything and agree wholeheartedly. And that's the beauty of things, the backgrounds, the, you know, just the outward appearance of all of us. You know, we definitely, you know, didn't see eye to eye, but I think every one of us learned something that night. And when you choose to just listen to what somebody's saying, try to empathize with what, you know, um, they're feeling and, 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 and not immediately attacking them and just loving on them, I think we're all able to take something away. So when, when something happens in the world, you know, think about it, think about it from their standpoint, think about the validity of what happened, whether it's valid or not, and then think about, you know, what is the right way to respond? And I think the reason all of us, you know, have Jesus in our heart, we were able to respond in ways that didn't necessarily agree with one another, but learned and understood at least that how one another felt. So we were able to walk out of there with, uh, uh, you know, hugs or air hugs, you know, and, uh, and, and still respect one another and sit here as a panel and go, yeah, we're not all on the absolute same page other than we all need a little bit more Jesus in our lives. <laughs> I think that's, you know, without a doubt. But anyway. Well, I took away that we <clears throat> all need God in our lives. And every day we need to set time for prayer and able to, so God can be able to soften our hearts and make it so that uh, we just want to love one another. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Rob. You know, when we look at this, these are complex issues, and we've got to turn to the one who is the master designer who designed all of us, and um, we need to look to him for the solutions and uh, rely on him to handle these things uh, appropriately. So, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you thank our panel today for the discussion that we've had? So, Now, we know we're not done. The series is done, but we're not done. And we're going to continue to work on oneness right here in Flagler County and uh, continue to do and be the right uh, people in this community um, to continue to uh, share with everyone God's love, uh, Jesus, who breaks down all barriers. And uh, it's going to be cool. One day, we're going to be in heaven together. And if you are black now, you're going to be black in heaven. If you're white now, you're going to be white in heaven. If you are Latino, you're going to be Latino in heaven. If you're Asian, whatever ethnicity. I, I love how the Apostle John said every nation, every tribe will be in heaven, be representative, uh, because our Creator has created diversity, and we celebrate diversity, and yet we can be one because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and how he broke down sin and broke down barriers for all of us. And so right now, we can be a taste of heaven here uh, in our oneness and in our unity as Jesus prayed. And so my encouragement to all of us today is um, you are ambassador. You are ambassador of God's kingdom. And you can help bring unity and peace and healing in your circles. And uh, to help you with that, uh, there's one resource that we really want to recommend. We made tons of copies of the Spiritual Growth Challenger that's out on the Connection Center. If you're watching from home, you can download it in the Watch Now area. Um, but on there, 
uh, we put this amazing resource, again, from Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Oneness Embrace. If there's a book to read, it's an amazing book. It will challenge your thinking. It's full of theology and God's thoughts on all of this um, as well. And then some practical things that we can do in our lives. If you're not a book reader, he made it into a six-part series, about 15 minutes apiece for each video. And uh, he put it free out there on YouTube, so you can watch that if you are not a book reader, I would say, please, please watch them. So that's on our spiritual growth challenge. Now today, as we conclude, this is how we're going to conclude. We're going to conclude a little different. Um, Sabrina, on the way over to our meeting a couple weeks ago, uh, wrote this poem in her car. I'm not going to ask her how she did that, Um, but uh, she did this on the fly. And when you hear this poem, it expresses her heart, and I think it expresses a lot of people in the audience and watching online, uh, just the struggle just the tension of all of this. And I love the movement that she has as you listen to her poem and where it goes. It puts her hope and trust in God. And uh, as we've talked about, you know, it's only through him that we can see each other in the way that God wants us to see one another. And so it's a beautiful poem. I've asked her to read that uh, to close us and then also to pray a prayer of oneness and unity. And then after that, as soon as she says amen, the pan's going to be out here when you open your eyes and uh, we're going to sing this song. Some of you, when you first hear it, it's going to be like, is that a Christian song? Hey, today it is a Christian song, okay? We're going to make it into a Christian song. And it really just displays God's heartbeat for him and then for each other. And it is uh, simply lean on me. And so I know you know it. You can dance, you can like clap your hands. I mean, you can get your groove on, whatever, you know. Um, so we're going to sing that together. And I want you to sing it with some gusto. My musicians would love that. Uh, but anyways, I want you to sing it. Sing it to God, okay? Uh, we can make anything an act of worship to him. And we need each other in this. We need to be as one on this thing. And, um, and so uh, in a moment, we're, um, I'm going to ask you, not in a moment, we're going to stand right now, and then Sabrina is going to close us um, by reading her poem and then praying over us as well. There is a war raging inside me, a war happening all around me, pulled to the left, pushed to the right, suppressed, oppressed, overflowing anger. Confusion, questions without answers, yearning for understanding, desiring solutions, needing reconciliation of thoughts, ideas, beliefs, truths. Will this end? Will that begin? Will it stop or simply start again? What will happen on that day? Purge my heart, clear my mind, heal my soul. Peace. Where are you? I need you near. I need you now. Quiet the rage. Calm the dysfunction. My tears are dry, yet their tracks have scarred my lungs. Breathing is labored. Exhaling the pain. Inhaling the hope. Tomorrow isn't promised. My days are numbered. Yet new mercies greet me today. Heavenly Father, I come to you now saying thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the moment. Thank you for all the words that were spoken. I ask that you touch every heart today. Lord, that you prick everyone 
to let them know that we are yours. You created us in our differences. You created us unique and special to you. Help us to not so much see each other's difference, but see each other's uniqueness and know that we are all one. We are your creation. I ask that you go with each and every one of us, that you lead us in a way that we can show your oneness as you and Christ are one, that we would be one. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.